look at him like he's, you know, he's crazy. He's, he's mainlining red wine or something. But even operations that we thought worked, such as certain rotator cuff repairs, they're not any better than placebo. Hey, Howard, how's it going? Hi, Paul. It's going really well. As I was telling you earlier, I, I was out cycling, and i it's one of these weird things that happen where you get pissed off at the beginning of a ride or a run, and you're like, you know what? I feel like crap. And so what I do, and this is Paul thing, but I'll, I'll defer to you, <laughs> is I go twice as fast as I plan to go because I'm 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 punishing my legs for having the, the, the temerity to act like they're tired after weeks of riding. And so we set a bunch of personal records, but largely in a fit of peak, as they say. So, <laughs> which is well, that that is unique to our bubble. As you know, I'm relegated to a Peloton. I have a yeah. heel stress fracture. I know. And I get on the bike and I tell myself, go slow, your legs are hurting. And the woman starts yelling at me on the screen and I go faster <laughs> than ever. There's a great line from a former Tour de France cyclist, and I probably have used this before, but what do I care? I'm, I'm old. I can use the same line more than once. It's from Jens Voigt, who was a, in the late 90s. He rode on, uh, I think, Armstrong's postal team as well as some others. And he used to talk about how he'd be late in the Tour de France, maybe stage 17 or 18, and be riding up, doing tempo for the Peloton, speaking of Peloton. And he would lean down, and people would ask him. It would look like he was talking. And they would say, what, what were you doing, Jens? He'd say, I talk to my legs. I say to them really loudly, shut up, legs. <laughs> <laughs> so a lesson to all of us I, sometimes it's just worthwhile just saying shut up legs and continue <laughs> so it would be fun to talk about medical reversals about things we're, we're unlearning and to some degree we're on we're discovering we're unlearning some things because of this virus but we can come back to that but i thought a good place to start and you and i were talking about this earlier is maybe we're unlearning some some folk wisdom in orthopedics and other areas and one of them is this whole idea of Try something, see if it if something doesn't get better. How long do I need to wait? Six weeks. Six weeks is this kind of this magic number. Is there any data behind the whole six weeks thing, or is this just complete arm waving nonsense? I think it's much like our kids repeat what they hear from us. <laughs> I think I'm just repeating what I heard my attendings say in the clinic. I mean, I have to admit, I've stopped saying it because unless you're treating a fracture, nothing heals in six weeks. It's on the order of three, six, nine, twelve months. So I'm much more realistic in terms of guiding people. But hearing this six-week phrase drives me crazy sometimes. Do you think it's because, okay, so two things. One is, I, I bet you're right, that there are some things that heal in six weeks. And there are things that, as as sports docs, we they they like to see, and that's a good example. Is like a broken bone. Oh, I know that. I, I know the drill here. I know how this how long this is going to take. And so, because there's a few things where there is a time frame that somehow gets extended into other domains. But the problem is, as as we've discussed, soft tissue injuries are just voodoo, right? I mean, there's no six weeks involved here. I mean, the only way that it resolves itself in six weeks is if something worse happens to you. There's no doubt. And in soft tissues, we obviously have chronic issues and overuse issues and these acute traumatic issues. The acute traumatic issues are probably going to get better a lot faster than these chronic 
overuse issues, but they're not going to do so in six weeks yeah. unless you're 14. Right? <laughs> if you're 14 and you're listening to this, you're fine. If you're over 30, forget it. Yeah. You have hamstring strains and Achilles strains and ankle sprains, and they're three, four-month injuries. Yeah. Right? It can take a long time to recover. I know we've talked about this. What bothers me is people are told you'll need an operation that's, unless that's you the start here, to get right? better yeah. in four to six weeks. Yeah. And, which is a crazy thing to say. I mean, I remember years ago I ran a race, and afterwards I was my right knee was really sore, and they were trying various things and shots and what have you, which was all just ridiculous because it was clearly not internal to the knee. So why I was getting cortisone shots? Ask their retirement plan because it didn't make any sense to me. <laughs> Nevertheless, I was getting those and it wasn't working. And so finally, this one guy was just sick of me. To be fair, a very nice fellow, and he was he was he had good reason to be sick of me because I was being really annoying. And he said, "Let's just see what happens here." And in, and literally those words, your words, in six weeks. If it doesn't, it hasn't resolved, we'll, we'll, we'll go in and have a look. And I was like, okay, great. Now we have an end date on this. I feel much better, which is, I think, part of the problem is patients and doctors and surgeons want an end date. They want another end to this, and it feels like it makes people feel better. But the problem was, and I'm curious what you think about this, I was maybe two days before the supposed procedure, and I called up his office and got him, got him to get on the phone, which is a miracle in itself. And I said, so... <laughs> What are we doing exactly? I hesitate to ask, but what are we doing? He said, I just thought we'd do, and this is the expression, and maybe this is some uniquely West Coast thing. He said, we're going to do a green smoke operation. And I said, what the hell is that? <laughs> he said, well, we're just going to look around and see if anything seems out of normal. And if it is, I, you know, I might buff something here or, or do something else over there. And I, I said, I see. So just find things that seem unusual and do something to them on the off chance that they're the cause of the problem. He said, yeah, more or less. The next day I canceled the procedure. I said, this is just ridiculous. This is me getting tied to an arbitrary schedule of six weeks for no good reason. Ugh. The thought of going in and cleaning things out and just looking around sort of <laughs> retired quite a while ago. There are a handful of surgeons who may still advocate that. I, I, found, I found one. <laughs> and there's evidence yeah. uh, to support that. But even operations that we thought worked, such as certain rotator cuff repairs, tennis elbow surgery, meniscus surgery, uh, even some ACL reconstructions, when you put them against a placebo, they're deemed to be not effective or not any better than placebo. Well, let's dive into a couple of those and geek out for a minute. So you, you pick which one's your favorite, but whether it's a, a cuff repair or an ACL or you know arthroscopy for osteoarthritis or something, I don't know, pick something that you just seem to be the prevailing wisdom and has ceased to be so. And walk me through why you think it was and what made it stop seeming like it was. The... So let's talk about Achilles tears. Okay. Let's, let's use a choice I wasn't offered. And, but with a caveat that it's not <laughs> entirely well accepted amongst orthopedic surgeons that they should be treated non-surgically. However, many, or if not most publications that have come out, and especially a few recently, have shown that non-surgical management from a functional perspective, as well as from a patient point of view perspective, do just as well as those that are operated on. And I have to tell you, there's very little skin between your Achilles tendon and the outside world. There's no muscle overlying it. There's just skin and a tiny bit of fat. I'm, I'm, I'm painfully aware of it. Yeah. 
<laughs> right. right. If you get an infection there, a hematoma, and the skin opens and you get an infection, you're getting a muscle flap, a big plastic surgery procedure. You may lose part of your Achilles tendon. It's just a nightmare. Yeah. And these people do super well if they're managed without surgery. And, and the, the data keeps coming out, yet... Second opinion after second opinion after second opinion that I see in the office are constantly told you need an operation. Regardless of whether they're a 30-year-old runner or a five-year-old diabetic who weighs 320 pounds, these people are being told that they need surgery. Yeah. It's it's very frustrating. So and on on the, let me just dive into that a little bit more, and maybe you were going this direction anyway. So I'll I'll just try and sound like I know what I'm talking about, which I don't. And uh, <laughs> so, what are some of the indicators for you that you might be able to get away without surgery? Is it the gap in terms of let's say there's an actual full full severing of the Achilles tendon? It's I don't know a couple of millimeter gap in there, if that's the right term of art. Is 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 it that that difference, that sort of ropiness of the Achilles, is in terms of how far apart the severed ends are an indicator of whether you can probably do this non-surgically or what are some of the things that might tell you? What, what were people missing previously is I guess what I'm trying to get to. Yeah, so, well, it was the mechanistic thinking uh, of okay. it's, it's ripped, we must fix it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. That is deep throughout orthopedic culture. Mm -hmm. there, there are a few when you MRI them, the rupture was so violent that the torn end flips back on itself. Oh, wow. It okay. creates a gap of six centimeters. Or Yikes. Something. Those, those, those are not going to heal. Mm. However, biologically, if the Achilles tendon is in the same room with the other end, it's going to heal. It's going to heal because it's in a tube. It's in a tube of tissue we call a paratenon. That paratenon has tendon stem cells in it. It's going to regrow that gap, and it's going to do so in the vast majority, if not all, cases. Is it actual? Um, is it actual in terms of the scaffolding that gets created between the severed ends? Is this best thought of as tendon, or is it scar tissue, or is it some? No, it's it's tendon tissue. Okay. It is collagen tissue oriented and aligned like tendon tissue. Right. That's why you can't compare surgery to people who are treated in a cast without surgery for six weeks. It's an accelerated rehabilitation program that has uh, worked wonders for non-surgical care. Hmm. You want to get that tendon moving early so that the tendon fibers reorient themselves appropriately and heal properly. They will heal with tension and with stress better than if they're just left to their own devices not moving hmm. for six weeks. Right. Now, there are those who will say, oh, but you'll be weaker. Okay. But that was a paper that just came out uh, out of England, I believe, where from a patient's perspective, there was no meaningful difference between surgically and non-surgically managed Achilles tendon rupture. Hmm. And we know from professionals, if you you know, tear your Achilles tendon, you don't come back from it. And if you do, you come back slower. You're not as quick. You've lost a step. Yes, Kobe Bryant came back, but he wasn't the same. But if you look at all the professionals, they really lose a significant step. So it's arguable in the professional or elite athlete, but you're not getting an elite runner, sprinter, <laughs> uh, soccer player 
back playing at the same level from an operative repair. But isn't that the key in so many of these examples that what's what's done with tops top professional athletes in terms of trying to get them to return to sport at the same level it's just it's not just a shades of gray in terms of what you might want done to yourself it's alternate dimensions i think this is a point that people miss well this is what kobe had done or this is what someone else had done yeah but it has nothing to do with you <laughs> you know what i mean right it genuinely has nothing to do with you not because you don't deserve the best care because you're a lovely person you are a lovely person and i'm the best care in this context is to get you back doing things as quickly as possible and trying to avoid the potential consequences of open surgery on an Achilles tendon and all the things that can go wrong. Sure. And could you also imagine being the surgeon who manages a professional athlete's Achilles tendon rupture non-surgically, and then when they can't return to sports, it's not the natural history of Achilles tendon ruptures. It's your fault, right? It's because <laughs> right. you didn't operate. Right. This is, which is just a trap. There's no way out of that trap, and it's a trap because it's going to happen either which way. So let's do one more. Well, let's talk about meniscus tear okay. because most most people who are listening to this who are over 50 have one. We know that a fair number of people have because they're a normal age-appropriate change, these complex or degenerative meniscus tears. And it's really clear in the literature on placebo studies and randomized controlled studies that that surgery is just not necessary. Now, granted, I have to say this because this is surgery versus a placebo. So in a placebo, you're putting people to sleep. You're putting incisions into their skin and waking them up, and they think they have <laughs> yeah, surgery. Yeah, that's key. So that's the critical factor. So weighing surgery versus nothing sometimes is challenging. But if you talk to any orthopedic surgeon who's willing to talk frankly and openly, they'll admit to you that there are some knees they've put a camera into and not done very much, and the patient <laughs> did magnificently yeah, well. Yeah. They may be patting themselves on the back, but it's clear that we didn't have anything to do with it. Yeah. Even recently, there was a paper, I'm sorry to jump off topic here, but there was a paper that came out that questioned physical therapy or exercise in the management of shoulder pain. And okay. one of my good friends, who you know, Jeff Berg, yep. came back and said, it's very clear that we're not doing anything except boring people and keeping them busy while nature heals their <laughs> dilemma. That's awesome. Right? That's great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I often think that's the case. You just, it's a thumb, it's, I, I mean, this is a terrible expression, but it's a kind of thumb sucking behavior. Absolutely. But. Meniscus tears are really common. They show up on an MRI. People freak out. They get really nervous. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, some surgeons will contribute to the problem but tell the patient, you can't run on this. You can't ride. You got to buffle on stairs. You can't, you can't, you can't. Yeah. And then that feeds this fear. And I think that fear is a significant reason why many people actually go on to choose surgery as an option. They're mistakenly thinking that fixing it will alleviate that risk of degenerative change or further injury, yeah. when in actuality, it's those who have the surgery who develop worse arthritis. Which is, yeah, and that's been one of the startling things in the, in the literature is that, that it can induce a kind of inflammation or at least markers of inflammation that seems to be a precursor to osteoarthritic change. Yes. I, I, a significant number of the knee replacements that we do are people who have had arthroscopic surgery for a meniscus tear. 
granted, some of them are 15 or 20 years later, but some of them are 6 to 12 months later. Yeah, which is awful. Um, and there are sometimes when you see knees that very rapidly degenerate. And those are awful situations, especially when they started with a meniscus tear where the pain in the knee was only present for four or five weeks. We know that the meniscus tear was probably there even longer, so we didn't give it enough chance to feel better in the first place. Yeah. I mean, there are markers, obviously, of things that have to, where you have to do something. If someone's knee is locking, you're kind of stuck, right? No pun intended, but you've got to do something. There's no, there's no doubt. We have bucket handle tears where the whole meniscus has flipped over and right. it's locking the knee. Right. We have these flap tears, and we now have these root tears where the attachment point for the meniscus has torn, so the entire meniscus is not functioning. And we know if there's no arthritis in those knees, they do really well if we fix the, that root. So, but these are far less common. Well, that's the point I was these complex degenerative tears. Right, and that's the point I was going to make. And that's some I, I, I feel like people don't understand this, and maybe some a lot of surgeons don't either. That in terms of the frequency and likelihood, the things you're most likely to see are the things that tend to get along just fine without a surgical intervention. Right. Right. Yes. I, I mean, and that's the that's the key. Is that yeah? It could be I don't know a root tear. Odds are it isn't, <laughs> right? Right. So let's not absolutely let's not get too hung up about it. So, so are you seeing the incidence among your colleagues of this kind of of, of meniscus repair declining? And I suppose this goes for some of the other things we've talked about. But I mean, specifically meniscus repair. Is that a kind of if someone says at a meeting, "Oh yeah, I've been doing a lot of that still," it's like, do you look at him like he's you know, he's crazy? He's he's mainlining red wine or something. <laughs> People are still doing a significant number of meniscus surgeries on these complex degenerative tears. There's no doubt. It, it's listen. I've I've recently <laughs> seen people who are in their late 60s, 70s, and 80s, and no, this isn't age discrimination. But they're not going to get better following and arthroscopy and a partial meniscectomy. They don't have zero arthritis in their knee, and that knee is not going to go into tolerate it well. Yeah. Very alarming. It is really alarming. I'll give a couple of examples of mine before we leap onto something else. Two that I sort of voodoo device type stuff that I'm increasingly convinced not only aren't helpful, aren't particularly helpful, they're probably damaging, are athletic compression stockings. And most wearable technologies. So this is this is my own hobby horse here. But I'll start with the first one. I, I, it drives me bananas how often I see people running in these. They look like cross country ski socks, but they started off. I think you can correct me, but I think they started off in the context of, of air travel, right? Where people were worried about potential blood clots and things, and they would wear compression stockings on those things on airplanes, and then it moved on to becoming athletic compression stockings. And for a while, it was briefly de rigueur, as the French say, to see every trail runner I saw looked like they were heading for deep snow. They had they had socks up to their knees. And <laughs> as I understand the most recent data, it's equivocal at best. And I'm not sure it's damaging, but it does zero for anything other than the bottom line of people who sell athletic compression stockings. You can feel free to tell me I'm wrong, but that's what my understanding is. 
No, I think you're completely right. I think it, like most things, is a placebo response. Right. And there are definitely a fair number of people who feel better when they're wearing a compression sock. Yeah. Uh, and a compression stocking. Same for compression knee sleeves. Yep. I mean, Copperfit is making hundreds of millions of dollars. It's remarkable. On this. And if it works for people, that's great. I just, the data in terms of a non placebo effect is pretty dodgy as far as I can tell. So, but on the other hand, it's the evidence in terms of people seeing this and if it makes them feel better, they run better and they get injured less, then God bless them. <laughs> right. Just let them go. Let them go. And then wearable technology is my other one. And I, I've been really, I started off late geek for these things, convinced that the more data we had in terms of being able to track performance, the better. And it's not just fastest times up a particular run or whatever else, but blood pressure and resting heart rate and all these other things. And I'm seeing more and more, not just abandonment, we'll put this aside for a second, because a lot of these things obviously just turn into shelfware and just sit there and people look at them and wonder what happened to the charger. But into people feeling like, because I have this thing, I must be doing something that's making me more fit. And <laughs> you're not. There's no relationship between having a wearable technology and getting more. This, this thing does nothing for you, right? I mean, it's at best, it's a thermometer, and it probably isn't a particularly great thermometer. It is funny when I see people in the office with a six hundred dollar Garmin right. watch, and I ask, and I ask how far they run, and it's you know, six miles a week. <laughs> it, <laughs> I, the six I, miles is great. You just don't need the Garmin for it, right? Correct. I've gone full circle on these wearables too. We've trashed sleep trackers many times, yeah. and I I like it to know my total volume yeah. of my runs or my rides. But I don't let them guide my activities. There's so many mornings when I wake up and my watch says I am compromised. That's the actual words <laughs> that it's telling me. Yeah. Yet I have a wonderful ride or a wonderful run. I see this even with my Garmin. And there's some an unnamed company. I won't say which one it is. But I noticed on Strava recently that I, I see people with their new whatever they just did. I just ran a couple of miles or whatever. It gets auto-posted by a device and gives a score and says how long you need to recover from that. And yeah. I just, I'm really troubled by that kind of thing. Not because I don't think there's a lot of people out there who wouldn't do well to know when they're doing things that hurt themselves, but I'm unconvinced that you can get that kind of information in a useful way from any kind of marker you're likely to see in, an, in a single run. Over the course of a week, sure, or maybe a month that I've, I'm getting into an overuse cycle, no question. But on an activity to activity level that this, this activity needs 18.2 hours of recovery and this one needs 19.6, yeah, get off my boat. That's just not. <laughs> right. That's just I not on. Agree. I, I think for Gestalt, it, it's fantastic. I mean, I actually sent you, I think I sent you my curves from my. That was great. When I, when I kicked my running up in March yep. and April, and all of a sudden I got my, you know, a few weeks later, boom, stress fracture. Yeah. So it was predictable when looked at month to month. Right. Day to day. There was nothing you would have no. seen daily that would have told you, stand back. You're no. about to blow, blow, a go, uh, <laughs> blow your heel here. This is, this is not the, uh, you weren't going to get that data. 
Correct. My watch did not warn me that I was going to... Yeah, we don't even have good tire sensors, so I don't know why we would have <laughs> sensors on anything else. So let's so let's get away from tire sensors and heel, and heel stress fractures, but let's jump out to... There's a, I'm a big fan of... I'm a finance guy, so I'm a big fan of natural experiments, this idea that we'd love to run all kinds of randomized controlled trials in lots of different domains, but the trouble is the planet's populated and people don't want to stop doing what they're doing in large enough numbers, so I never get to find out what will happen if I try experiment X, Y, or Z. I, I mean, just to give a goofy example, I was looking, there's some great papers coming out right now about the effect of, no, of the absence of crowds on professional soccer, and which is a, a wonderful natural experiment, right? Because it's not like you could ever convince La Liga or the Bundesliga or the Premier League and say, hey, I want you to run the season with half the teams having no fans and half having fans, and I want to be able to come up with some good evidence about a home field advantage. They'd be like, screw off, you crazy bastard. Right. <laughs> We're not going to do that. But so what's happening now is there's some great data showing that home field advantages, in terms of the effects, the it seems to be very powerful, but only at the highest levels of soccer. And if you go drop down a few divisions, the absence of crowds is making no difference. So it turns out that home field advantage only matters if your stadium is packed and the fans are and are on TV and screaming. Otherwise, it doesn't have much impact. It's been really it's really clever work in 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 doing natural experiments. And so that got me thinking, and there was a piece I saw today in the New York Times about it, but there's been lots of other work going on, that something similar is happening in medicine, right? Because people are terrified to go to the hospital to have anything. I, I better be literally dropping dead before I'll go into a hospital sort of thing. And I mean, it's changing now, but because of this, but nevertheless, people are going less avidly, let's just say, and less easily than they would have in the past. And that's creating a kind of natural experiment about what gets better that people would normally have gone in to have people like you or whomever look at, but it's surprisingly perhaps to you or to them or to someone else it's getting better. I mean, the piece in the Times today wasn't about orthopedics. It was about uh, obstetrics. And it was talking about how it wasn't quite universal, but it was pretty widespread phenomenon that that the number of premature births has fallen by like half or three quarters, depending on the jurisdiction. And this is true across in Canada, they're in, in the US, in England, and all of these researchers simultaneously doing the same work and finding out that other people were finding the same phenomenon, which is just remarkable. I mean, it seems to be somehow tied to something that's going on during the during this virus, but it's created a kind of natural experiment in premature in the absence of premature birth. So that is a long way of saying I'm wondering what we're seeing in terms of other areas of medicine and specifically in orthopedics that that you're seeing in terms of people staying away and it's causing or not causing what? Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, I had a surgery schedule booked through April and May during the, prior to the shutdown. And if you look at the number of people who were convinced that they needed an operation, prior to the shutdown and then compare that to those same people who thought they needed a surgery after the shutdown ah, okay. we're at about a 25 percent positive rate <laughs> most 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 realized that yeah, they were going to get better mm. and they didn't have to choose surgery and others realized that what scheme of things what i'm dealing with isn't really so bad mm. Which is which really interesting. So there's kind of two things going, or at least two things going on at once. One is people learning to live with something and saying, what, in the great scheme of things, I can deal with this. And the other is, and this is one of the perennial problems in medicine, is that the passage of time is solving the problem. Correct. We do need to bore people while 
while Mother Nature takes over. Yeah. So, d- but there were there were a handful of people. I have to say this, who did get much worse, and we're very happy that the the shutdown yeah. went away sure. and we were able to operate on them. Right. So I don't want you and others to think that I'm a non-surgeon surgeon. <laughs> I don't even know what that would be, actually. <laughs> it feels like a Zen paradox. Like, what is the sound of one hand clapping or something? No, and I think, but I think that's a key distinction to make is that it's, this is more to do with the effects of confounds in any discipline, medicine in particular, that in something where there's a time-based component to it, when you force people to take more time than they had planned, sometimes things get worse and they still need to come in, but sometimes it gets better. Correct. Right? Uh, I've seen many people get better and many people change their minds. I've seen it in my parents too, mm. right? They canceled a bunch of tests and a bunch of studies that really weren't all that necessary, but they were convinced that they were until the pandemic. And now they haven't had them and they're doing just fine. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Who knew that having a global pandemic would... Anyway, on that, that's a that's a positive note to end on. So that's that's great. I think it's a, it's a really fascinating topic, and if nothing else, we're going to see some great over the next few years about what the effect it had on people in terms of their health. And I and I bet there'll be some interesting and interesting, surprisingly positive ones in there. It's going to be fascinating. I mean, when they dive into heart disease and stroke, yeah, and yeah. stents, it's really going to be wonderful to look back on this data. Yeah, I can't wait. So, well, thanks, Howard. Thank you, Paul. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. Content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice.